it would open the public's mind the fact that, well, wait a minute, not only is this animal testing not giving us the answers we want, not only is it wasting decades and many billions of dollars, but it looks like we don't need it. It looks like it's not contributing at all to the information we need to fight these things. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. And we're going to start today by posing a question. Is the key to finding a successful vaccine for COVID-19 found in those who have already survived the virus. That is what we'll be exploring today as Dr. John Pippen joins us on the show. He spends his days researching and promoting the most effective methods of drug development, none of which, by the way, involve animal testing. And so with that in mind, we are going to discuss one of the vaccine trials currently underway that went straight to testing on humans. Now, according to Dr. Pippin, not only does this fast track the creation of a COVID-19 vaccine, potentially by years, but it's also more efficient because the results achieved in animal testing very rarely translate to success in humans. So many believe that not only is it unfair for animals, but it's also driving up the cost of development by millions of dollars. And that cost is ultimately passed down to you and I. So if researchers are able to develop the first COVID-19 vaccine without using animals, what could that mean for the future of all drug development? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And then changing things a little bit, you know the old saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. We've all heard that. Well, in this time, when we're hyper aware of our health, I wanted to revisit a segment that I did with dietitian Susan Levin, where we did a little fact checking just about that. Now, there is little doubt that apples are, in fact, healthy, but... Can they, in fact, keep the doctor away as prescribed? We're going to get to the bottom of that. But first up, we begin with Dr. John Pippen and a look at where things stand with COVID-19 vaccine development and how eliminating the animal testing phase may speed up the process. Continuing here, our special look at the coronavirus here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. I'm joined now by a gentleman making his debut on the show. He is the Director of Academic Affairs here at the Physicians Committee. With that, we welcome Dr. John Pippen to the Exam Room. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chuck. I've been uh, looking forward to an opportunity to be on the podcast. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, especially amid this uncertainty that we're all facing right now. 
We've seen people here reporting about wiping down packages that they receive, the deliveries that they receive at home, wiping that down with disinfectant, even going so far as to wipe down uh, their groceries before putting those away in the refrigerator. I mean, just on kind of a scale of one to 10, what is your understanding about how easily this particular virus can spread? Well, it's, it's difficult to scale it um, on a scale of one to 10 uh, because the comparators are not that uh, many. But when something with the potential severity of this particular coronavirus can be spread just by touching a surface where someone with the virus maybe touched it the day before, uh, or being among people who are totally asymptomatic uh, and yet are infectious. They don't know it. Um, you can go to a restaurant. Uh, you can go to a party. You can go to a business gathering um, uh, like has happened recently. You can go to conventions and uh, a couple of weeks later find out that you've got the virus. And some of those people a fair number of them wind up in critical care and some of them die. We've painted that picture, which brings us to the next portion of this interview, which is kind of at the heart of what we do here at the Physicians Committee. The last I checked, and this I believe was an article that I read in The Guardian, I would consider them to be a reputable uh, media outlet. They said that there was something in the ballpark of 36 facilities now that are working worldwide on developing a vaccine. Where do things stand right now in terms of that development? I know that they're trying really hard to fast track this, but what is your understanding of where things are? Well, the preface to that is that the public doesn't understand the process of developing a vaccine. The, the usual time to develop a vaccine once you begin that research is 10 to 15 years. We can't Obviously, we can't wait 10 or 15 years uh, for a, a vaccine. Um, the, there's a lot of misinformation out there about vaccines, about treatments that um, uh, kind of uh, unfortunate entrepreneurs are, are pushing online. Um, the, the development of a vaccine in the standard manner using animals and identifying the receptors on the infective cells and finding a way to tag, um, tag a molecule to carry some version of that in a vaccine which allows the recipient to build antibodies in his or her blood to the uh, infection that hopefully if they're exposed to it, they won't uh, get infected. Because the, the standard approach, it just takes far too long when you've got numbers like we're looking at. Um, any deaths from this are, are a tragedy, but the, the numbers we have are, are really frightening. Um, there, one of the approaches is sort of ironically in an environment where the FDA and USDA uh, tell us that animal testing is essential to develop safe and effective treatments, including vaccines. We're now investigating at least one vaccine. There's more, but one is getting a lot of press that has never uh, gone through all of that. Uh, it's from a company named Moderna. 
And their vaccine has a different mechanism of action than the one I described to you a couple minutes ago. It incorporates a, um, a messenger RNA, uh, ribonucleic acid, which uh, reads the DNA in the cells of the people who receive it um, and through a variety of steps, hopefully uh, gives some immunity allows that person to develop antibody specific for uh, what we now know about this um, uh, coronavirus. It's not been tested before, not even in animals. Um, and yet the crisis is enough that this is happening now. We will start getting results not too far in the future because the way this virus infects and how quickly it shows up um, will not take years to figure out. You will know if someone uh, tests positive for the virus. Uh, you'll know if they convert from negative to positive. You'll know if someone who already has the virus can get rid of it. And you will know eventually, not right away, but you'll know eventually whether this uh, purported vaccine gives long-term immunity. You know, it's like when you're you, measles as a kid, you know, they had measles parties back in the day um, because once you were exposed, you were immune for many years, if not a lifetime. We don't know if that's true with coronavirus. And there are already cases of people who have recovered from the infection and later developed it again, which is uh, very frightening to me. Uh, because it would mean that any vaccine uh, that was developed would be incompletely effective. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, speaking with others previously on the show, they have spoken at length about how oftentimes the results of these tests that are conducted on animals, they don't translate to results in humans. You don't get that same response. What does that say to, you know, the, I guess, the overall effectiveness of animal trials. I mean, should we be concerned? Should the average person be concerned that we have fast-tracked this in this one particular instance, skipped over the animal testing phase? Or is this like we're just kind of eliminating something that wasn't necessary in the first place? That last thing that you said, uh, we, under dire circumstances, you take shortcuts. And it is, I think, correct to move more quickly instead of taking the standard path of um, trying to identify animal models. There are no animal models for this virus. They're trying to create them now. Um, it's more than you said, Chuck. It's not a case of doesn't always translate. It's a case of hardly ever translates. Um, the National Institutes of Health um, has stated uh, in its policy statements and in its directives to um, the public that at least 95% of the treatments developed successfully in animals fail in humans. Now, that's, that's not dumb luck. That is a strong indicator that you cannot look at a disease process in an animal that is not human and translate that to human beings. 
the the hoops that researchers jump through to try to identify some kind of animal model, they call them animal models, uh, to predict what will happen in humans has never been successful. It's, um, it's just, uh, that's why when animal research fails to translate, the response of the research community, which should be, okay, let's use human relevant methods for crying out loud. Let's use human cells and tissues and serum and learn from patients who have something how to deal with it. You can even do that on the individual level. Uh, it happens in cancer medicine, for instance. You can, you can develop a treatment that is specific for a patient's particular cancer by uh, using uh, tissues from that individual. Uh, but to use a method that failed when we were trying to do the same thing with the SARS epidemic in 2002-2003, and that failed again when we were trying to do uh, something regarding MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome in 2012 and a few years after that, to then come back to that to try to address a virus that is structurally very similar to those you know, previous two, they're all coronaviruses, um, strikes me as irresponsible. Um, it's, we know clearly that's not the answer, and yet here we are doing it again. Now, already we know that uh, some of the standard laboratory animals that have been used to study these coronaviruses um, are not useful for uh, the uh, COVID-19 population. Um, so how are researchers approaching that? Well, are they getting serum from people who have had the virus and deriving from that antibodies that can be used to uh, create vaccines that will give immunity to other patients? We're actually doing some of that. Uh, but by and large, we're continuing down the um, totally discredited animal research uh, pathway. And one way that's happening is now that we know that mice and rats and certain other laboratory animals um, are not useful, researchers are looking to create, in conjunction with commercial companies, transgenic animals, uh, which means animals who have been manipulated genetically to be susceptible to the virus and to give a model for treating the virus. We're not quite there yet, but it doesn't matter. It's not going to work. It's never worked before. Mm. And uh, it's a waste of time and a waste of money. Let's stick on that waste of, of time part because you said uh, a couple minutes ago that it typically takes about 10 to 15 years for a vaccine to come to market. How much of that time is typically devoted to testing on animals, would you say? Several years. Um, and it's not just a case of coming to market. When you, when you are trying to create a vaccine, most of the time you fail. Look at the chronic diseases we have for which we have no vaccine. We've been working on HIV AIDS since the early 1980s, so almost 40 years, uh, over 200 um, uh, putative vaccines and not a single one of them 
has worked. So the vaccine development process itself uh, is a study um, in failure. The, the answer, I think, for any reasonable person with a science background is that we have to ignore, oh, and by the way, even very close species like other non-human primates have been used in this kind of research. We have to acknowledge the fact that um, the genetics are working against us. You put something into a mouse or a rat or a cat or a dog, and it doesn't behave the way it does in a human. And that's why even after you confirm that you have a successful series of tests in animals, you have to start all over again in people because we we don't know whether it works in people or not, and it almost always does not. So I think the short-term approach for a vaccine is to take advantage of the fact that we know people who have been through the disease have antibodies in their serum, and that that can help critically ill people get over the hump. That sort of passive immunity, it, it's called, doesn't last very long because your body destroys the um, the foreign antibodies. Um, but that's that's the technique. You look at how people have fought this off successfully, you learn what their secrets are, and you use human relevant methods to get the answers. Um, one of the things that has frustrated me over the years is how unwilling researchers and government funding agencies have been willing to make that step from animal research to human relevant research. As an example of how important it is in the research community, and I, I'll spill the beans, I used to be an animal researcher uh, many years ago in a previous life. I'm not proud of it, but I learned from it. Um, we, we fail to, we don't fail to understand, we fail to respond to uh, the abject failure of these efforts to develop vaccines and drug treatments. Well, I, you know, I think that your previous life as an animal researcher, um, I think that that gives you all the more credibility here to be speaking on this because you absolutely know about the shortcomings of those techniques. You know, it's no different than a lot of people who listen to this podcast who used to go to the drive-thru every day and eat Big Macs. They don't do that any longer. That doesn't make them any less credible when they talk about nutrition. I think that the fact that they've been there and they've done that, that, that gives them even more credibility. So, you know, I, I wouldn't let that um, be, be a knock against you whatsoever. Let me switch gears here a little bit and ask you about how does the emergence of this virus, I mean, really just kind of speak overall, trace that back to the way that we're treating animals altogether? Well, you look at where this particular virus comes from um, and you relate it to what we learned in the early part of um, the 2000s from very similar infections. The SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome virus, originated in bats and was propagated through civet cats. It also arose in China uh, at open food markets like this particular virus did. Um, we look at how the MERS virus uh, came about a decade later and it also originated in bats. 
And um, although it's not 100% certain, it seems very likely it was pro propagated by dromedary camels mm. as an intermediate. And we look at this particular virus, the SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus, and see that it also originates in bats, who, of course, live in huge colonies, and anything that gets rolling in those huge colonies is going to affect thousands and thousands of, of bats. We're not sure what the intermediary is, but based on what we know about these Chinese food markets, it's most likely to be pangolins, which are one of the most... Um, abused animals in the world, and they're used in uh, mostly in the Middle East and Far East uh, as food. So the answer to your question is if we were not creating circumstances that um, help these viruses propagate, and if we were not putting them in direct contact with uh, humans, uh, where we learn to our distress that um, they are zoonoses, and zoonoses are diseases that can uh, move from non-human animals into the human animal, we wind up in a situation like we have now. And it all comes back to how these things originate and how that is due to how we relate to animals. And it's a lesson we've never learned. I guess my final question to you is this. If we are able to successfully develop a vaccine for COVID-19 without using animal testing, say it's it's the vaccine that's being developed that went right into the human clinical trial phase. What does that say overall to the future of animal testing when it comes to vaccine development for drug development, all of the above? Not as much as we would hope. And the reason is you're talking about a limited circumstance and researchers and funding agencies. And by the way, the panels that uh, give away NIH money are uh, comprised primarily animal researchers themselves. We will meet the argument that, look, we've been using animal experiments for decades um, it really took off after the thalidomide disaster back in the 1950s. We've been doing this for decades. We can't hang our hat on something that happened one time or two times. The counter argument is, yes, you've been doing this for decades and it doesn't work. And in here, right out of the box, the first time we tried doing this by skipping animal testing, hopefully, fingers crossed, mostly for the victims, um, we have a success. What does that tell you? It's not scientifically valid in a statistical sense because the numbers on um, the way we're going about it now are very small. But it would open certainly to the public's mind the fact that, well, wait a minute, not only is this animal testing not giving us the answers we want, not only is it wasting decades and many billions of dollars, but it looks like we don't need it. It looks like it's not contributing at all to the information we need to fight these things. We can develop these things in a laboratory. We can use human relevant methods so that we skip what the researchers call the valley of death. The valley of death is that gap between what works in the laboratory animal and what might work in humans. Mm -hmm. And the valley of death is called that for a very good reason. So, um, 
it certainly will put that on the table. Uh, but we have to do much more than that because uh, it won't be enough to say, look, this worked in this case, we should get rid of animal research. Well, that's true. But uh, convincing the people who make those decisions is going to take much more evidence that animal research is not only unnecessary, but um, contrary to getting results that can be applied to humans. Well, Dr. John Pippen, I greatly appreciate your time. And as this continues to unfold uh, with updates, I would love to be able to check back in with you. That would be great. Thank you. You can learn more about the work that Dr. Pippen and his team are doing to eliminate animal testing. We've put all of that information up on PCRM.org, and you can also click a link to that in the episode notes if you're listening to this on Apple Podcast. Let's turn our attention now to America's most popular fruit. When you factor in how we eat them raw and from a can, even frozen, and of course drinking the juice, Americans consume more apples than any other fruit, and it's really not even close. Get this, the average person will put away nearly 30 pounds of apples every year, according to the USDA. <laughs> and so, as we go bananas for apples, it's time to answer that age-old question. Can an apple a day really keep the doctor away? To answer that at this critical time, I wanted to revisit a segment I did with dietitian Susan Levin, where we explore all the health benefits this fantastic fruit has to offer. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for listening to the show this week. You know, we are talking all about red ones, green ones, yellow ones, big ones, small ones, crisp ones, not so crisp ones, apples, my friend. We are talking all about apples, the health benefits that come from eating an apple. What are they? Are they indeed nature's medicine? Hmm, we're going to find out. Can they keep a doctor away? Well, we're going to ask a dietitian that question anyway. With that, we welcome Susan Levin from the Barnard Medical Center to the show. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for having me. I love it when you're here. Thanks. I absolutely do, because you have come armed once again with a ton of information, and I cannot wait to bite in to the proverbial apple here. Oh, my God. You know, how, how old were you? Are you, you going to do that the whole time, apple metaphors? It, it writes itself, so I would encourage <laughs> you also to just participate. Okay, I'm going to try. I don't have to be the weird guy that keeps throwing it out there alone. Well, I, I won't let it get under my skin. Ah, ah, I see what you did there. Yeah. I see what you did yeah. there. I know. I'm trying. I know. They're, they're, none of them are going to be good. I'm just <laughs> letting you know right now. None of them are. Okay. Um, but, you know, an apple by any other name is Malice Domestica. Did you know that? Nope. Yep, yep. That is the, <laughs> the technical name for an apple. Malice Domestica. Got it. But how could it be Malice? Malice is something bad. It's spelled differently than Malice that I'm talking about, but Malice, M-A-L-U-S. I would think mall, mall, M A L bad, That's, right? Yeah, but what is the Spanish word for apple? It's uh, manzana. Never mind. Yeah, yeah, I think Never you're mind. right. But yeah, whatever. I thought maybe there was a relation. There's no malice when it comes to apples. No. That's the point here, Susan. Um, so let's uh, let's start by this. I mean, what exactly is in an apple? You know, because looking up this this list of all the nutrients, all the vitamins, the acids in there. I mean, it is. 
It's a list as long as my arm. What is in an apple? Let's take it from the top and work our way to oh the to the core. Hey, see what I did there? Oh my god. Yeah, sorry. All right. Um well I had to I had to try to out nerd you on this one. Yeah. Chuck, because I, my general take on fruits and vegetables is oh they're all good. They're all great. Let's make them all part of our diet. So when I had to dive into apples specifically, I actually learned quite a bit and yes, they're high in all the nutrients that that for foods that we this is why we eat fruits and vegetables right they have a lot of fiber they have a lot of potassium and folate and um, apples are no different they do have all of these wonderful vitamins and minerals and of course fiber being one of the most important nutrients of which we lack so much in this country um, and then to learn about all the very powerful nutrients like the phytochemicals and antioxidants, the teeny tiny things that are hard to pinpoint that seem to be what gives people so much more benefit when they eat apples is kind of what I, I took out of this. It's like, oh, there's some there's something to eating an apple a day. Mm-hmm. Now, one of you, it may have been you, it may have been one of your colleagues uh, in the last month or so did a segment on the ABC affiliate here in Washington, D.C. about all of the water content that's found in food, staying mm-hmm. hydrated by mm-hmm. eating. And you look at the water content of an apple, you bite into it. Obviously, it's a juicy fruit, yeah. not the gum, but just a juicy fruit. There's a lot of water in there, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty easy to tell when like you said, when you bite into something like an apple or an orange and how it, it does have such a heavy water content, that that plays a significant role too, not just in hydration, which is important. And, and the reason I always tell people when they travel by um, airplane, you know, take some hydrating fruit, slice up some apples, slice up some oranges, um, and that will help replenish the liquids that you're losing. And of course, the water recommendations that people get for every day, fruit plays a role in that too. That counts towards the water that you need. Um, but also water, along with fiber, is heavy, so it is more filling when you eat really hydrated fruits um, or other foods, so it makes you feel full. And already you're eating something really healthy anyway that has all that fiber and is bulky and doesn't sure. have that many calories. Sure. Well, l- let's talk about that that fiber, you know, because that is something that is oft overlooked in the standard American diet but never overlooked on this show. No. Uh, how much fiber is in the standard red apple. I think that that's really the uh, the statistics that I pulled from, the nutrient uh, facts here, are mm-hmm. for the standard red. Mm-hmm. How much fiber is in one of them? Uh, approximately four to five grams of fiber are going to be in most of your apples, uh, as long as you're eating the skin. Mm-hmm. And I do think that a lot of people... It, Peel, peel their apples for whatever reason, um, and and there's value to eating an apple in any form. But yeah, the skin is going to have a lot of that fiber in it. So eat the skin. Yeah, well, the skin's got a lot of other good stuff in there as well, and uh, I think we'd be remiss if we don't talk about that at some point. But I, I want to put a pin on that. I want to spend a, a good five minutes on the skin of the okay. apple because, okay. like, the stuff that I found looking up the nutritional value of an apple with and without the skin. Mm -hmm. I mean, night and day, Susan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Night and day. I know. Um, Apples and oranges, really. Yeah, I see what you did there. Keep the puds coming. Keep them coming. Um, Okay, so here's one that always also gets talked about. You know, this is is a big one, especially in the fitness community. Should we be eating fruit if we're 
if we're going to be having that chiseled body, that hard six-pack abs and things like that. And a lot of times they'll say, hey, no, you shouldn't do it because it's got a lot of sugar in it, mm-hmm. you know? And so if really, if you do look at the sugar content in an apple and the back of like a pack of mini M&Ms or something like that, you're going to say, well, it's kind of similar amounts of sugar here. What's the difference? What aren't people registering here? Right. So there's a huge difference between sugar and added sugar when you're talking about nutrition facts in foods Mm -hmm. um, or other products. So even though there might be similar total sugar, if it's added sugar like you're going to find in candy such as M&Ms or processed foods, packaged foods, sugar itself, um, it is completely different. Whereas if you're eating natural sugars in fruits, that is very helpful. And it does come with the fiber that keeps it from absorbing too quickly the way added sugar will do. Um, so it's it's really night and day. And I really encourage people not to be discouraged by, quote unquote, sugar itself. Um, but rather, what, is, what are you talking about? Are you talking about corn syrup? Are you talking about um, white powdered sugar? Or are you talking about an actual piece of fruit? And do not be afraid of the fruit. The fruit is going to protect you. And if you're talking about an athlete uh, who's trying to look a certain way, I mean, this is just another one of those foods that fills you up, fewer calories, those carbs that help support an athlete's um, endurance. So you do not want to get these out of your diet. Yeah, carbs. um, We'll stick with sugar here for, for a second, but obviously carbs fall into that category 25 grams of of carbs here in the standard apple that's a pretty healthy amount right that's a perfectly healthy amount there's no reason to be afraid of carbs especially if the ingredient list a especially if there is no ingredient list there we go she's got the finger out if you're not watching this yeah there's no there's no (laughs) ingredient list except apple on in an apple right right but if the list has the whole foods in it like in apples grains and you're looking at the carb amount don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are exceptions. There are people who have to match insulin to their carb intake, and that and they know that's a different deal. But in general, don't worry about the carbs as long as you know the ingredients are good. Now you're ready to get nerdy. Yeah. Here, here's the first super nerdy question, right? So when we talk about total sugars, right, that's where we get that roughly 19 grams per apple, right? But there are various forms of those natural sugars right. in there. Uh, sucrose, glucose, and fructose. What is the difference between them? Okay. Yeah, this is super nerdy, and I really had to put on my um, college cap again. So there are three mono, meaning one, mm-hmm. saccharides, sugars, meaning it's just the one compound. So it's it's glucose, it's fructose, and it's galactose. Okay. Those are your monosaccharides. Right, right. When they team up together, so fructose, um, I'm sorry, so sucrose right. is fructose and glucose together. It's a disaccharide. And those have to be broken up and turned into monosaccharides. Or they can be broken up and turned into monosaccharides. But, yeah, your body breaks down any carb or any sugar into its simplest form. Usually glucose is what's going to feed our cells. So yeah, it's it's yeah. it's science. It is science. Mono, it's a lot of Latin. I love that, you know, the, because there are. I mean, people are sugar, but no, man. I mean, there are a bunch of different types of sugar. You, mm-hmm. you know, lactose, maltose, galactose, sucrose, fructose. You know, yeah, you just, all the oses. Depends on how you combine the oses. That's it's a, right. It's an os party. 
Um, but then, you know, if, if you go and you look at the things that are more frequently talked about, not nearly as nerdy, you look at, you know, just your vitamins, right? So, of course, you could run the gamut A to K, but vitamin A, correct me if I'm wrong here, if we're just going to kind of rattle these off in order, not really that significant of a source of vitamin A, correct? No, you're, you're in a plant, it would be beta carotene, and those are going to be your darker orange um, fruits and vegetables, so not so much in an apple. Right. Plant-based diets, obviously, a lot of people need to supplement with the B12. None of that found whatsoever in the apple. But Not unless it's a little bit dirty, and I don't know if you want to be eating a dirty apple. I see where you're going with that. So let's talk about the other B vitamins. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, but really, again, just like vitamin A, not a whole, whole heck of a lot going on there. Not a ton. Not a ton in an apple, but... But, yeah, right. Right. Cold and flu season. That's coming up there soon. Yeah, yeah. Know. What do you think about when it cold yeah. and flu, right? Vitamin C. Yeah, yeah. Vitamin C is a terrific antioxidant, very rich in your plant kingdom. And apples do have, I mean, not one of the highest, but it definitely is a, a good source of vitamin C. Yeah, this this surprised me. Uh, eight and a half milligrams of vitamin C, right? And so if you look at the RDA for that, that's 14%. That's not bad. That's not, really quite good. Right. I know. Because it is, I mean, it is super prevalent, again, in, in, in fruits and vegetables. So you're if you're eating a plant-based diet, you're not going to be short in vitamin A, mm-hmm. uh, C, sorry. But um, yeah, apples kind of prove the point. Like, oh, if it's if it's in apples, you can imagine like an orange and a red pepper and all those really high vitamin C sure. foods. Yeah. Uh, vitamin D, that's a big goose egg. Vitamin <laughs> E, almost non-existent. Vitamin K, uh, you got just a teeny tiny amount on there. Vitamin K, that's one of those vitamins, though, that kind of gets overlooked a lot. So I was like curious... Uh, don't you primarily find vitamin K in like green foods? Am I mistaken there? That's right, right. You probably have heard that because people who are taking blood thinners have to watch. Two points for um, you. Thank you. Have to watch those greens because of the high vitamin K, which or vitamin K is um, can interrupt what blood thinners are trying to do. And vitamin K is pretty much in almost i remember learning it's in a lot in trace amounts you can find it in i believe i remember learning it's even in coffee hmm. so uh, but yeah nothing like your green your leafy green vegetables so those are just the vitamins we we haven't even gotten to the amino acids yet and really we'll skip over the majority of them and we'll link off to the full nutritional breakdown of the apple like spend an hour looking at this and your mind will be blown it's really kind of kind of fun uh but here's one that i was not expecting susan of the amino acids, you got your essentials. Among the essentials, tryptophan. Yeah. Tryptophan, famous. You think about that post-Thanksgiving meal, you know, drowsiness, that food coma, quote-unquote. Who knew an apple had tryptophan, right? Well, here's what I love about this particular fun fact is that a lot of people think the ubiquitous, where do you get your protein, yeah. right? Even an apple, and fruits are not high a high protein food but even an apple is going to have all the essential amino acids just in varying amounts pretty small amounts including tryptophan so yeah and tryptophan does is associated with um making you sleepy and it is present in your plant foods as much in your carb heavy foods it's not just in the thanksgiving turkey the 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 story that everybody tells but it's important too i mean tryptophan does help with um like you were saying makes you sleepy because it does 
convert to, let me get this straight, tryptophan converts to melatonin, which helps with sleep. It also converts to serotonin, which is, helps regulate mood. Um, but you got to eat it in the right amounts. Right. And if you're eating your plant foods, you're definitely going to get it in the right amounts. So we're talking a little bit less than two milligrams here. Is that a substantial amount or are we just talking like not a trace here? Trace, trace. Okay. But again, because fruit is not a high, they are not high protein foods. Right. But, um, but to, to me, what it does, it proves the point that all the essential amino acids are in your plants, even in fruit, even mm. in fruit, which is not even considered a very um, significant source of protein. Gotcha. You know, the reason I brought that up is I was Googling apples and the health benefits and, you know, I was like, oh, all right, well, let's see what people are writing about. Somebody sees tryptophan and, of course, up goes the health blogger, apples, good to help you sleep. I don't think they're going to keep you awake, but I'm not – based off of what you just said, I don't exactly think that you should no. avoid operating heavy machinery after eating a red delicious. Or driving a car. No, yeah. but I mean in general, I think eating all of these – hydrating high fiber foods do regulate your energy um which does play a role in keeping you well rested and uh, so i think there's something to that right um super nerdy non-essential amino acid uh aspartic acid is am i <laughs> am i butchering that no you're not at all what yeah. what is that because it's 127 milligrams to me that seemed like a lot you know but yeah obviously yeah. you've gone to school i haven't well, you tell that me. doesn't matter. Um, yeah, it's not a lot. It doesn't I, matter. It, I mean, you don't need a degree to do this show. I know. <laughs> maybe, maybe I didn't go to school. <laughs> um, no, it's again not a significant source of protein, but really good data to prove. You know, the protein is in the fruit, so it you know it's in the bean if it's in the apple, right? Uh, that's another pun right there. That's another okay. pun. Uh, glutamic acid, same kind of deal. Yeah. 45 milligrams-ish. We're going to put the ish on there. Trace. Trace, Trace amounts. Okay. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> uh, real quick before we dive into the interesting studies that you found, uh, let's uh, compare apples to apples here. You don't mm. often get to do this, but I was wondering, I was like, okay, so you've got a bunch of different kinds of apples. Let's simplify this. Let's just look at the red apple versus a green apple and then the yellow apple. So is there one that's any more healthful than another? Um, I think it depends on how you measure healthful. And if you were to – and so I'm going to steal – a concept from uh, Dr. Greger, okay. who actually did look into this, ah. um, and he did it by uh, measuring antioxidant values of different okay. apples, different breeds of apple, and he found that it was, and this is kind of a womp womp for me, but Red <laughs> Delicious was had the highest antioxidant value, with Granny Smith running a close second. So really? I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and, and one of my favorites, Fuji, kind mm -hmm. of being at the bottom oh, of the one. Ooh. He didn't look at all of them, but of the ones he, he looked at, yeah. Do you remember where the ever-popular Honeycrisp fell? It wasn't on there. No. It wasn't on there because, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Honeycrisp fan. Yeah. Actually, that's my favorite. You'll take that over the Fuji? Uh, yeah. Okay. I really will. But it might be some mental because of what Dr. Greger said. Um, yeah. But but again, I, I think that to get hung up on one aspect of a food, like the antioxidant value, 
eat the fruit. If, well, you, if you like the Fuji, eat the Fuji because it's still going to have that fiber that's really good for you and the, the vitamins and minerals. You're, now we're talking about some really micro, micro stuff here mm-hmm. with phytochemicals and antioxidants. But, um, you know, if, if you're going to do Fuji or nothing, do Fuji. <laughs> Fuji or bust. Right. Um, the face that you made with the red delicious. Oh, I am oh. just, you know, if there's an, an essence of being mealy or not crispy, then I'm not a fan. That's See, that's just it. It's mealy. My wife is the exact same way. Mm-hmm. She just cannot stand it. She wants a good, crisp mm-hmm. apple. So it's it's honey crisp or jazz apples. When we can find them ah. in season, you ever had the jazz apple? No. Let me tell you something. Never even. Game changer. Okay. Game changer. Okay. All right. Better than the documentary. This uh, is a real life game changer. Okay. All right. Jazz apples. Sometimes you can go to Trader Joe's and they'll have the uh, the bags of them. Really? They're kind of small. But, man, they are, are they crisp really? and okay. juicy and delicious. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, apple. So eat the fruit. That's what you're saying. I mm-hmm. wanted to just kind of go over a little bit of research that I found when I just pulled the nutrition facts for, for each of these. Compared to a red apple, when you get a Granny Smith apple, the Granny Smith has, I mean, just, it's almost not worth mentioning, but a trace more fiber a little bit more vitamin K, uh, and of all the apples that I looked at, and granted there are just dozens of varieties of them, um, this is the only one that I saw that had selenium in it. Hmm. Yeah, right? I, I That is interesting. I wonder if they're not um, measuring maybe sometimes. The USDA doesn't necessarily, if this is from the USDA. It is. doesn't necessarily pull every nutrient for every food that they look at or hmm. analyze every nutrient for every food. Um, but yeah, selenium, essentially any mineral that can be in the earth's crust is going to be in your plant food. Uh, it just doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a lot. Right. But selenium is, is an important antioxidant. So it's good that there's even a trace amount in one of those. I mean, just so, I mean, we're talking micrograms here. Right. Right. Just so, so small. Uh, slightly fewer carbs, no big deal. Slightly less sugar, um, slightly less water. I, that one kind of surprised me. I would figure that most apples have about the same amount of water. Yeah. Uh, again, we're not talking about a huge difference, but I was like, all right, well, that's that's worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Um, calcium slightly less. Who knew? Uh, <laughs> but again, not worth mentioning. And then if you go to the uh, the yellow apples. Uh, Fewer carbs, a little less fiber, a little less sugar, glucose, water. Same kind of deal, but, I mean, all in all, apples and apples, set them next to each other. It's it's all good. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like if, if there's one you like, eat it. Eat it. Just, Just eat it. Isn't that that Weird Al song? You know, didn't he yes. cover a... Cover, uh... God love him. God love him. <laughs> yeah, Weird Al. Uh, all right. Let's talk about those studies uh, real quick because uh, I think that this is... Uh, this is a good way to kind of wrap this segment and, yeah. and really kind of put everything into a neat little bow. You found that research has been done specifically on the effect of eating apples on, you know, various health ailments. But there was one in particular with kids overall, mm-hmm. right? And they yeah. looked at kids who ate apples. Yeah. Again, so trying to make sure you didn't out-nerd me today. I was doing some of my research in the medical journals and found that... 
again, being a skeptic, like, oh, there's not going to be anything about apples specifically because all fruit's good, right? But I did actually find some pretty interesting stuff, some data from um, – for fellow nutrition nerds, NHANES data, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey data, government mm-hmm. stuff, um, that showed that the ch- that children who eat more apples have a better nutrient intake and a better n- nutrition profile overall in hmm. terms of everything else that they eat. So I thought that was kind of an interesting finding, and it seemed to also apply to – Foods you might not think are as nutrient, like applesauce, which typically does not include the skin, um, and even apple juice, which I don't recommend. But I just thought that was an interesting um, finding from the NHANES data. You think it's – I'm sure that we could dive way deeper into this. But do you think when you talk about just a healthier overall nutrition profile, is that because, well, if an apple is a healthier food and they're yeah. eating that, there's a yeah. good chance that they're eating other healthier foods? Yeah. Now, some of these studies will take that into account and they control for other things that they eat and mm-hmm. they're able to isolate out just the benefits of apples specifically. But um, not all studies do that. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a lifestyle component to this. If you're a big apple eater, you're probably also a healthy eater overall. Um, you might like other fruit, too. Uh, maybe you exercise more. Um, but but again, typically some of those components are controlled for. We mentioned antioxidants earlier in the show. And I wanted to take a couple minutes to revisit that because you told me something right before we started rolling that literally, I mean, I would have thought you were lying if you didn't have that piece of paper in front of you. And that is that they have uh, like a super high amount of antioxidants, higher than uh, what uh, acai bears or. Well, yeah, there was a study that looked at some the antioxidant uh, activity of acai berries, and they found that apples were similar, if not even more, <laughs> active in those same kind of compounds. So I. I thought that was interesting. Like, okay, everybody associates acai berries with being some kind of superfood. And um, unfortunately, it's also a very expensive superfood. So just knowing that something as commonly eaten as apples and commonly available as apples uh, may have the same benefits, if not better, Hmm. is good news. And again, I was just kind of looking at how many apples do Americans eat anyway? Like how popular are apples actually? And it depended on what you looked at, like what are the most popular fruits um, people purchase versus what they eat versus what is produced. But usually apples were in the top three at least in terms right. of the most popular among Americans. So they're certainly accessible. People like them. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they do have such a high nutrient value, especially the antioxidants, is I think good news. You don't have to be – a pomegranate seed, acai berry eater. Right. You know, it doesn't have to be exotic. Right, it can, right. It can be from, from the farm Get next the door. Good old-fashioned apple. Yeah. I, I'm good for about three a week. What about you? Do, do you at least. At least. Because you know what I love about apples besides um, accessibility is that they're very forgiving. They will sit in my refrigerator for a long, 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 mm. long, long, long time. And not go too bad. Um, so, yeah. See, now this is – that's an important note right there. In the refrigerator, there is a debate. Do I refrigerate these or do I leave them on the counter? You say fridge. I say fridge because I do think it keeps them fresher and the um, crisper. And, again, mm. we've already established that crispiness is 
an essential component to my pleasure with an apple. Yes, I agree. Um, So, yeah, it does help with that. Um, Let's look at uh, a couple other studies here. There was one uh, that looked at elderly women in particular, correct? That's right. So that was a um, cancer study. And it, but there were a couple of cancer studies, and one happened to be looking at um, elderly women and mortality mm-hmm. from cancer, and, but also from heart disease. And it found that the women who ate the most apples uh, were associated with a decreased risk for death, essentially, from all cause. Wow. But, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, you know, that was a good uh, selling point for apples, um, but also found another study that showed even no matter your gender, there seemed to be some association with apple intake and cancer. Interesting. Cancer reduced. Right, 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 right. right. Huh. Yeah. So, so apple's good, even if you're a young man, not an old woman. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not to say that even you can't um, extrapolate if it's good for an elderly woman, it's probably good for everybody. It just so happened that that study looked at elderly women. I would imagine antioxidants would probably Play a role there as Certainly. well. Certainly, something yeah. about the anti-inflammatory properties. Um, but you know, we don't know why people who and there's been other studies that generally look at fruit. Why is it that people who consume the most fruit seem to be at lower risk for things like cancer, and maybe even more of a newsflash: diseases like diabetes, where unfortunately a lot of people with diabetes are told don't eat fruit; it's too high in sugar. Right. Um, but actually, consuming fruit is associated with less risk right. for diabetes. So, right. And it's certainly associated with less risk for things like um, cancer. So right. to tell someone with diabetes who's actually at higher risk for getting cancer to avoid fruit, I think is um, borders on irresponsible. Right. Frankly. Uh, Sticking with that, when a person eats an apple uh, or a person eats a candy bar, you're seeing like two completely different results in their blood sugar. There's not going to be that spike with an apple as there Mm -hmm. would be, say, with the Milky Way, correct? Exactly. So now you're getting into the glycemic index of foods. And yeah, something that's um, really sugary and fatty and uh, the sugar is going to digest more quickly than uh, something that has a lot of fiber in it. And, And most fruit, almost all fruit does not have a high glycemic index, despite what some people might think. Um, there's a couple of exceptions. Um, like, I don't know why, watermelon and pineapple have a right. high glycemic index. It's not to say you can't eat them, but because um, they still have all these very nutritious uh, components to them, unlike a candy bar. Right. But, um, yeah, it's a completely different type of sugar, for mm-hmm. sure. That's interesting. Eat your fruit, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's let's stop uh, with the peel here because uh, there are some researchers said, hey, I like the apple, but let's talk about that skin because mm-hmm. a lot of people peel it. What did they find there? Yeah, so some, some research has looked at peel specifically. Um, and the peel, I've, I saw a study that showed that people who consumed apple peel had reduced risk for uh, irritable bowel disease, uh, reduced risk for joint pain or arthritis. Um, so there's a doubt, and we know that the peel has a lot of antioxidants in it. So I do think it's an important part of the apple. Mm-hmm. And if given, given the choice, um, eat the peel. Yeah, and if you take the, the peel off or the skin, I mean, you lose more than half of the fiber. Yeah. Uh, that That's a silly amount. Um you lose actually uh, some of the vitamin C and the K. Even you lose some calcium, some iron. Uh, you lose half the iron. Not a lot of iron in the apple to begin with. No, but, but if you're yeah. just looking at yeah. 
you know, the numbers for what they are, you lose about half. That's a lot. Yeah, really shows you, uh, certainly in terms of volume of that tiny, skinny uh, skin, how much is packed in there and why right. it's really a good idea to keep the skin on if, 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 you know, if you can stand it. Now, if you don't like apple skin or there's some other reason you're avoiding the skin, fine. Eat the apple. The apple's still good for you. But um, I highly recommend right. keeping the skin on. Right. There's a quarter of the vitamin C, 30% of magnesium, 25% of potassium. Um, and the other big question, and I, I, I really will leave it at this one, uh, is apples. You know, we hear that they are on the uh, the dirty dozen. And so this is one, in your opinion, if you can, go ahead and get the organic, correct? Yeah. I mean, my general recommendation is if you have the means and access to eat organic, go ahead and do that. If you don't, Eat, eat the plants anyway because these studies that we're talking about here are not looking at organic fruit. Right. They're looking – or apples. They're looking at apples. Right. These people did better when they ate apples. Um, it is not parse out organic versus non-organic. Right. So um, we know there's a benefit with eating apples. Right. But, yes, why not avoid the pesticides? Right. Again, if you have um, the means to do that. Right. And, you know, if, if you don't, there's no shame in, in putting them under the sink and scrubbing them for a little bit before you go ahead and, sure. and munch on them. Always know? a good idea. No shame in that yeah. game. Susan Levin, thank you so very much for thank being here. Thank you, John. Right before we jumped into that interview with Susan, we were talking about the popularity of apples in the U.S. They are indeed the top fruit here. But if you were wondering what other fruits are on the list, well, the top five is rounded out like this. In order now, you've got apples at the top, followed by oranges, bananas, grapes, and strawberries. Honorable mention goes to pineapple and watermelon. And if you are an apple fanatic like I am, there are some amazing recipes in our database, including, get this, apple pie nachos. Apple pie nachos. That recipe is in Dr. Barnard's book, Your Body in Balance, and it is super easy to make, sure to satisfy your apple craving, and you best believe we put a link to that recipe right in the episode notes for this show. Or you could just head over to pcrm.org slash recipes and search apple. And yes, they are amazing. And yes, these are the healthiest nachos you will ever eat. Before we wrap things up today, I wanted to encourage you to join us weekdays at noon Eastern over on Facebook for The Exam Room Live. Brand new show. Right there on the Physicians Committee's page, Dr. Barnard and I will be keeping you up to date with the latest facts on the coronavirus. We're tracking our progress and flattening the curve and giving you tips on staying healthy. Plus, we're doing a little bit of myth-busting as well. You know, we've all seen these supposed cures that are getting tens of thousands of shares on social media. But the question is, do they actually work, or is this a work of fiction? We'll do our best to set you straight. And already we've taken a look at the ideas floating out there about garlic and blueberries. A lot of people say that both of them can cure what ails you. And can they? We got the answer. And coming up this week, we're also going to be talking about another hot one making the rounds. 
resveratrol. Have you heard about this one? Resveratrol? This is a biggie. So check us out noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page, The Exam Room Live. We hope to see you there. And you better believe as well, there is a link to that in the episode notes. Also, be sure to join us this Wednesday in particular. It's going to be a big episode devoted to answering your questions. This is going to be a live half-hour Q&A with Dr. Barnard and Dr. Jim Loomis. I encourage you, get your questions in ahead of time. And the easiest way that you can do that is on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC, or you can just hop over to my Facebook page, hit that like button and send the question there. Alternatively, the Physicians Committee is at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on the gram. And please, as you're clicking around, also head over to Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever shows are available, and search for the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee. And when you find it, hit that subscribe button and leave a five-star review. Because not only will you begin receiving new episodes automatically, but you'll also be helping to get this information into the hands of someone who truly needs it. Because the more subscriptions and the more good reviews we receive, the higher the show climbs in the podcast rankings. And the higher the show climbs, the easier it is for people to find it and to learn all of this potentially life-saving information. So I want to thank you in advance for helping with that. And stay close to the exam room because coming up in the near future, we will be welcoming Dr. Hanna Kaliova back to the show. She and her team have just completed some fascinating research on just how important sleep is when it comes to keeping your immune system in tip-top shape. You know, we've all heard how important those eight hours a night are. Well, they're even more important than originally thought. What she says about falling just one hour short of that seven hours as opposed to eight hours, well, that can make all the difference in the world. Plus, we will be exploring practicing medicine in the digital age. A growing number of patients are taking their doctor's visits online now, not wanting to risk exposure to the coronavirus in a traditional doctor's office. So that kind of begs the question, is this the future of medicine? Well, we'll be getting the ins and outs of dot-com doctors from Dr. Vanita Raman, who herself is holding cyber visits with her patients at the Barnard Medical Center. This is a really fascinating introduction to the modern-day equivalent of a doctor's house call. How does it work? What if you need a prescription? All of the above and more. We're going to be covering that very soon on the exam room. But for now, that is going to wrap up our appointment for today. My thanks again to Dr. John Pippen and dietitian Susan Levin for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based. <laughs>